didn't just revere the sun from a spiritual perspective. They also recognized that sunlight appears to have the ability to heal. So even if you think you're a night owl, if you didn't have light exposure at night and you got out more in the daytime, you would probably be a lot more larkish. And that could be really important if you feel like you're struggling with sleep deprivation. Welcome to Sleep Junkies. I'm Jeff Mann, and we cover the whole conversation on sleep. So today we're talking about the huge role that sunlight plays in our health. But not just our bodies, but also our mental health, our emotional well-being, and of course our sleep as well. And so today we're talking to an author who has written a book exploring what she calls a new science of sunlight. We're going to take a little walk through history and find out that these ideas are not new ideas, but in the last few decades, scientists have made some real breakthroughs into understanding this very intimate and intricate relationship between the natural 24-hour cycle of light and dark and our overall health and well-being. If you're liking what we're doing at Sleep Junkies, help us spread the gospel of sleep. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on social media. We've got a Facebook group, Sleep Junkies Worldwide. That's it for the introduction. Let's get on with the show. Okay, good afternoon. And I'm joined today on the other end of the line all the way from Bristol in the UK with Linda Geddes. Hi, Linda. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Okay, we're talking about your book today, Chasing the Sun. Is it sunny in Bristol today? Yeah, it's glorious. Um, it's really, yeah, blue skies after several days of rain. So yeah, I'm feeling very cheerful. Well, the weather is very on topic for the, the subject today. We're going to talk about the book in a little bit, but I just want to give a little introduction. Linda is an award-winning medical and science writer. You studied biology at University of Liverpool. Uh, You used to be the the features editor at The New Scientist. This is your second book, I believe? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I spent about a decade working at New Scientist, doing various jobs, including being the kind of the medical features editor, the medical news editor, kind of a biomedical reporter. So lots and lots of lots of different jobs there. And your first book, just to note, is is called Bumpology. Great title. And I think you describe it as a, a myth-busting book about pregnancy. Is that right? Yeah, it's basically all the questions I had when I was pregnant and when I had a newborn baby for about everything from, you know, is it, do I really have to avoid eating camembert um, <laughs> through to why does baby poo smell like mustard? Um, all these quite and, and also lots of stuff <laughs> about births. So. <laughs> So basically, basically, it was my way of um, continuing to maintain a day job while being obsessed with with pregnancy and babies. Okay, so we're here to talk about Linda's new book, Chasing the Sun, the new science of sunlight and how it shapes our bodies and minds. I want to kind of start at the end of the book um, because there's a little, um, Mm -hmm. what do you call it, an epilogue where you had the opportunity to take part in a solstice ceremony at Stonehenge 
which is an yes. ancient monument for anyone who's unaware. The reason I, I, I mention that is because one of the, the themes of the book is that this idea about living in harmony with the sun, these aren't new ideas. I mean, these go back to antiquity and, you know, we've got the father of medicine, Hippocrates and Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. So I wondered if you could just talk about this idea that, you know, it's, it's a new science, but these are like ancient concepts, really. Yeah, well, the idea that sunlight might shape our bodies and our, our minds to some extent has been around a very, very long time. You know, our, our ancient ancestors in, in lots of different civilizations, you know, separated by thousands of miles and sometimes thousands of years, had this kind of reverence for the sun. Um, and they, you know, they tracked its movements over the course of the year and they paid particular attention to the middle of winter and the middle of summer when the sun appeared to kind of stand still, which is what solstice means. Um, but our ancestors didn't just revere the sun and have this interest in the sun from a spiritual perspective. They also recognized that sunlight appears to have the ability to heal. So, you know, if you look at the kind of ancient Babylonians, ancient Egyptians, they used sunlight often in combination with kind of plant extracts, which they applied to the skin to heal skin diseases. There was an ancient Egyptian medical document called the Ebers Papyrus, which advised anointing and exposing painful parts of the body to sunlight because sunlight seems to alter our perception of pain and, and, and relieve pain. But both the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans kind of recognised that sunlight and sunbathing might help cure all sorts of things from obesity to depression to epilepsy, all sorts of things, uh, malnutrition. Um, but I mean, Hippocrates also pleaded for moderation. And actually, he was the person who came up with the first kind of medical documentation of melanoma, which is the deadly skin cancer, which is caused right. by too much sun exposure. So, you know, it's a balance. Um, but Hippocrates is also one of the first people to make an observation of a circadian rhythm in humans. So circadian rhythms, for anyone who's not, not familiar with them, are these fluctuations, these kind of roughly, well, these 24-hour fluctuations in all sorts of physiological processes from, you know, the most obvious one is that we feel tired at night and we feel alert and awake in the morning and during the day. And if you, you know, if you've ever had jet lag or tried to, or worked a night shift and then tried to sleep at the wrong time of day, you know, tried to go to sleep at sort of nine in the morning, it's really difficult. And that's because we have this circadian rhythm in our sleep and alertness. Um, but we have these rhythms in all sorts of things from our brain chemistry to our immune cell activity to when we release hormones. So, you know, Hippocrates noticed that humans show this ebb and flow in the severity of fever over the course of 24 hours as well. As you mentioned, also ancient Chinese physicians and Indian physicians, they also noticed that the human body is different at different times of day and also at different times of year. So I think this idea that the body has this kind of link to sunlight, and by sunlight, I suppose I mean more the kind of 24-hour rhythm of light and darkness that the sun controls, and also this kind of seasonal variation, which again is obviously related to our relationship with the sun, they recognise that it changes us in quite profound ways, which affect our health and our mental health as well. Yeah, yeah. These concepts have been around for a long time, but now, you know, 
we've been through a scientific revolution and you know science has moved on and split into so many fields we're exploring all the intricacies of the different ways these circadian rhythms and clocks and cellular biology works and it's almost like we kind of know a lot more how these things work, but we're, we're trying to find ways we can fit modern living into a, a, a coexistence with a natural way of living as well. Yeah, I think so. And, and the reason my book is called The New Science of Sunlight is because this kind of idea that the sun influences our biology has, has, was kind of reborn at the beginning of the 20th century and, and the evidence for it has been growing since then. But in the last, I'd say in the last two decades, um, we've really started to make quite a lot of progress. So 2017, I think, the Nobel Prize was awarded to the scientists who discovered how these circadian clocks work in our cells. Um, at the same time, we, we, you know, in the last 20 years, we've learned that that bright light affects the timing of these clocks. Um, but also we're learning lots of stuff about other stuff the sun does to our body. So, um, you know, everyone has heard of sunlight enabling us to produce vitamin D, but it's also becoming clear now that sunlight, it kind of tweaks the functioning of our immune systems. So there's a kind of crosstalk between our skin cells and our immune cells, which is really fascinating. And also it triggers the release of this substance called nitric oxide in our skin, which influences how relaxed our blood vessels are. So sun exposure can affect our blood pressure. So I started reading it. Well, I've been writing about all this stuff for New Scientist for some time, and I was fascinated by it. Um, but it was actually the thing that triggered me to think, oh, I think there's a book in this, was I was at a conference in Las Vegas, and I'd had really bad jet lag because I'd flown from, from London over to Las Vegas, and I'd gone straight into this series of meetings for several days with these scientists in these dark meeting rooms in this business hotel and there was nowhere to sit outside and after about three days of this I was just I was I was all over the place and I was desperate to sit outside you know just get some sunlight and just get some normality back to my life um and I felt I think I really was kind of like yearning for the sun and there was nowhere to sit outside because I wasn't in a try as I might I just kind of went from resort to resort through these kind of underground passageways and across these vast casino floors where the sun is deliberately banished so people you know find it harder to keep track of time until I found myself in this kind of underground shopping center at Caesar's Palace um, and I saw what I thought might be daylight up ahead and I got very excited and then when I got there I looked up and just saw this vast beautiful but completely artificial <laughs> sky and it was at that point I kind of went oh my goodness we've lost something we have you know our relationship with sunlight has become really quite perverted and um, we spend our daytimes in the biological equivalent of twilight, actually, because the light levels in most homes and workplaces is actually dimmer than it is at sunset outside. And then in the evenings, we light up our homes with artificial light. And that's having an impact, I think, both on, on that kind of effect of sunlight on our skin, but also, and I spend a lot of the book talking about this, it's affecting our circadian rhythms and that has an impact on our sleep and many other aspects of our health as well. That's a great segue because some people might be tuning in thinking this is a podcast all about sleep and if everything you said about the sun and how it affects our biology is interesting but what has that got to do with sleep so i just wondered if you could make some of these links because in the book you talk about health in general 
Mm-hmm. But sleep is a massive, massive part of that. I don't think it's really discussed too much in the media. I think there's a lot of room for more education in this area about specifically why the sun is so important to our sleep timing and the quality of our sleep. Yeah, well, there's two things there. There's the sun, but then there's also light. So I think there's a lot of coverage about how exposure to light at night can affect sleep. Light at night does a couple of things. It alters the timing of those circadian rhythms, so it pushes them later. And that means that you get less sleep overall, assuming you still have to get up to go to work or school the next morning. And also, you know, light at night suppresses melatonin. It boosts alertness. So you don't feel like sleeping so much. Um, But then light exposure during the daytime is also really important. So the first thing is that exposure to bright light boosts alertness. um, And it does that both directly, because you have this population of cells at the back of the eye that um, feed into the areas of the brain that affect alertness and mood. But light also affects the timing of those circadian rhythms. And that therefore has an impact on your, your sleep. Like I said, if you're, you know, the timing of when you see bright light will shift the timing of your clock. So if you see light at night, it shifts that timing later. If you see light in the daytime, and particularly kind of soon after you wake up, it will shift your circadian rhythms, and therefore when you feel sleepy, slightly earlier. So I'm sure lots of your listeners are familiar with this idea of being a night owl or a lark. Um, And I think there have been a few studies now suggesting that If you send a group of people camping, say, um, where they'll be exposed to a lot of light in the daytime and then very little light at night because all there is going is a kind of campfire, what you see is that even people who say they're night owls, they start to shift their sleep timing to be more like an early bird. So I I was kind of inspired by these camping studies and I thought, I wonder what would happen if I was to get rid of artificial light at night and get outdoors more during the daytime while living and working and leading a relatively normal life in a house in Bristol. Uh, So I did this a couple of years ago in December and January. And I basically, after 6pm, I switched off all the electric lights in our house and we just got by on candles. And then the daytime, I also did everything I could to get outdoors, but I'm still a journalist working at a computer. So, and it, and it was December, so I couldn't really work outdoors, but I would do things like sit in the garden and have my cup of tea in the morning. I would, if I had things to do, like that I didn't involve being on a computer, like doing telephone interviews or, you know, making a to-do list, I could do that outdoors. So I'd sit outside in the park with a big coat on uh, and make my to-do list out there. Um, and what happened, and I did this with some researchers at the University of Surrey, and what we saw was when I started releasing this hormone, melatonin shifted between one and a half and two hours earlier on these weeks when I was either less light at night or more light during the daytime or both. But we also saw other things. So so I, I definitely felt um, sleepier earlier in the evening, which fits with the idea of my circadian rhythm shifting earlier. Um, but also when I woke up in the morning, I felt 
alert and raring to go rather than having that kind of groggy sleep inertia. And my mood was also better when I woke up in the morning. You know, I woke up and I was kind of happy and cheerful and like, right, let's start the day. But that's just a study of one person, right? Um, even if I did it with scientists and we, you know, kept these meticulous sleep yeah. and mood diaries and um, and was measuring melatonin. But it's been seen in, in some other studies as well. Uh, there was a study done in America um, in these offices run by the General Services Administration, which is like the biggest landlords in the US. They fitted these office workers with these light monitors and just measured over the course of several weeks how much light they were exposed to and, and how, how they were sleeping. Um, and what they found was that people who were exposed to higher levels of light during the daytime, particularly during the morning hours, they slept better and they slept longer. There was another study also which looked at just, it was a kind of study where they got people into a sleep lab. So they were monitoring their sleep more closely. And that found that people who are exposed to more bright daylight during the daytime, they experienced greater amounts of deep sleep and less fragmented sleep. And if they did wake up in the nighttime, they felt better the next day anyway. They didn't feel like that kind of broken sleep was having such an effect on their alertness and the way they felt the next day. It's just one of those things we we take for granted. You know, a lot of people go into a, a dimly lit office, let's say, for the majority of the, the daylight hours. Um, but the, you know, we measure light in, in lux levels. But the difference, even on a cloudy day between being in an average office and being outdoors, it, it's enormous, isn't it? It can be massive. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's take some examples. So, you know, most people who work in warehouses, the lux level there might be 100 lux. Most offices, it's like 200 to 300 lux. Even on a dim, cloudy day in winter, it's about 5,000 lux outside. Um, but on a on a bright, sunny day like it is today, it could be 100,000 lux outside, which is why I say, you know, a lot of us are spending our daytimes in the biological equivalent of twilight yeah. because it, it may feel bright and that's because our eyes are clever things and they can adjust and we you know we have enough light to see but it that's that's affecting it's affecting us it's affecting our circadian rhythms and our sleep i can't remember who used the analogy but where i read it first so that this idea of the sun setting our rhythms i like this analogy so when people used to have grandfather clocks in the house and occasionally they'd go mm -hmm. out of whack yeah. and then someone would eventually come and reset the clock when it would go out of sync this is my analogy for what the sun is doing it's, it's just resyncing us back to that 24 hour period i liken the impact of sunlight on our circadian rhythms to like being a reset button on a stopwatch. So we all have these circadian rhythms which are generated inside every cell by this little kind of molecular process. But in some people, those rhythms run at slightly over 24 hours. And at some people, they run at slightly under 24 hours. And that's, that's very individual. Um, but, and yet all of us still function on this, in this 24 hour world. And we, you know, we, we fall asleep at more or less the same time of day each night. Most of us do. And that's because um, even if you have a rhythm that's running at, say, 25 hours, um, if you see bright light during the daytime and then dark light at night, um, that light basically acts like this reset button and pulls your clock backwards a little bit and, you know, 
keeps it on time, just like that grandfather clock. You know, you have someone kind of basically coming in and going, you're running a little bit slow there. Let's let's get you on time. So you have this you have this patch of tissue in your brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SCN. I often refer to it just as the brain's master clock. And that is directly linked to these these cells at the back of the eye that respond to light. And um, what happens is that the timing of that SCN um, is affected by light. And it's a bit like, it's also a bit like the Greenwich Meridian. It's like a kind of reference point for all the Mm, other clocks in the body. So that patch of brain tissue is sending out these signals to all these other clocks around the body going, yeah, you need to just tweak a little bit and and get back on time and and keep synchronized with the time of day outside. Now, if you are constantly in dim light or, or darkness, what happens is that these internal rhythms in all these cells start to free run. So you'll start running at whatever your internal clock likes to run at, be that close to 24 hours, close to 23 hours, close to 25 hours. You see this in, you know, blind people who have no light perception whatsoever. Um, and they get this non-24 hour sleep wake disorder where, you know, you can see that you can see their their clocks running, you know, say you have a 25 hour clock, you know, you'd wake up at 8 a.m on day one. The next day you'd wake up at 9am, the next day you'd wake up at 10am, the next day you'd wake up at 11am. And so quite quickly, you become completely out of synchrony with the rest of the world. And you basically have the equivalent of, you know, constant jet lag. And you see this in some sighted people as well. And we don't really understand why. But that's an example of what happens if you don't have this kind of synchronizing influence of light. The other thing that happens if you if you don't see, you know, if you're exposed to more constant conditions of light and dark uh, during the day and the night time so you quite often see this in hospital patients actually who are you know they're they're forced to stay indoors in these big buildings that don't have a great deal of daylight and they have you know low light levels overnight you see this flattening of their circadian rhythm so rather than having these kind of sharp peaks and troughs in all these biological process and processes and when you release hormones and when you feel sleepy and awake you see it all starts to flatten out and those kind of flattened circadian rhythms and also these desynchronized circadian rhythms that you get if you start to see light at random times of day and night um, those things are associated with poorer sleep and poorer health so these flattened and desynchronized circadian rhythms are associated with various diseases including type 2 diabetes depression um, they also seem to be associated with impaired healing. Yeah, I love the little example you give in the book about hospital patients. When there's windows, they'll find the patients will naturally turn to face the window. You know, like flowers. You know, will, will follow the sun. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and it was Florence Nightingale who observed that. Actually, she she um, you know she really believed in the importance of sunlight to patients' recovery, and she said that what harms patients most after a kind of close room, you know, where there's where there's no fresh air, is a dark room, and it's not just light, but it's sunlight that they want. And she saw, she noticed that, you know, even if someone was really badly injured on one side of the body, they would lie on that injured side of the body so that they yeah. could face the window and and face towards the light. Yeah, it's really interesting. It just shows how instinctively we are drawn to the sun. Um, in the book, um, mm. you went to visit the Amish community in america was yeah. it in pennsylvania yes yes yeah i spent a bit of time there in my 
teens when I was sort of backpacking around America, and I didn't really know anything about the mm. Amish back then. The Amish, for uh, anyone who who's unaware, they kind of shun most modern technology, not completely, but they pretty much, they don't use electric lighting in the home. As a result, you say that they make very good sort of case studies and scientific studies because their their lifestyles and also their sort of sleep-wake patterns are completely different. I just wonder if you could just talk briefly about the kind of things you, you found out when you were hanging out with the Amish. Well, I was I was fascinated in this idea of, you know, what would happen if you didn't have electric light and what would happen if you had a more kind of traditional relationship with with the sun or with light and dark, which the sun controls. Um, so I went and spent a long weekend with this Amish family who very kindly let me into their home and basically stalked them and asked them lots and lots of questions about about sleep and light and darkness and what they do and how they light their homes um and what we found was uh what i found fascinating was first of all so they they have they're not connected to the electric grid but they'll have like a a large gas light typically in their in their downstairs kitchen but it's on wheels so they could wheel it into their sitting room where they you know sit in the evening and maybe read a magazine or a book or or whatever but the thing that really struck me was that they go to sleep a lot earlier than we do in well than other than regular Americans do in 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 more normal American households that have access to electric lights. So yeah. if you kind of like and, and there there's been a study published on this as well, but if you if you look at the kind of typical bedtime for an Amish family, it might be like 8 39 p.m. And then the whole of Amish society wakes up and starts running at about 5 a.m. You know, everyone's out, out and about. And I, I, I went there on Memorial Day weekend, which is like a bank holiday for UK listeners. Um, and, you know, my host, Hannah, said, well, you know, if you, if you really want to kind of follow me and, and see what we do, you know, it's going to be an early start. <laughs> you know, we, we get up. We're going to be getting up about 4.45. Is that okay? And I was like, "That's fine. I've got jet lag." <laughs> yeah, but they, they were they were getting up before sunrise. Interestingly, you, you said. Mm, well, it was around the time of sunrise because this okay, was in May. Okay. So they, but yeah, I mean, they they get up about that time, and that's uh, sometimes of year that will be before sunrise. At other times of year, it will be kind of after sunrise. I think there is a bit of a difference actually between summer and winter. Without an alarm clock. Without an alarm clock, no. I mean they you know, they basically get up a lot earlier than us. And that's, I think that's because they don't have the light. They have some light, but it's not bright enough that it's pushing their circadian rhythms later. And this isn't just the, this isn't just the, you know, the family I stayed with. I interviewed lots of, lots of Amish people while I was kind of stalking this family <laughs> um, and asked them, you know, it's like, I, I interviewed this one woman called Katie Baylor who, who said, oh yeah, I'm an, I'm a night owl, you know, I'm, I'm really unusual. And, it, it's really it's a real struggle for me because you know I want to stay up much later than my husband and and I want to sleep in in the mornings and I'm like well, what does that look like to you and she, I said you know when would you like to go to bed she was like 10 p.m. <laughs> and I said well when would you like to wake up she was like 6 a.m. that would be yeah. great <laughs> I'm like that sounds pretty early to me but you describe yeah. yourself as a as a night owl and you know it just shows that you know that there is this innate variability in people's sleep and wake timing whether you're a a lark or a night owl is genetically predetermined. You can't do that much about it, but your light exposure will will push you, you know, earlier or later. So even if you think you're a night owl, if you didn't have light exposure at night and you got out more in the daytime, 
you would probably be a lot more larkish than you think. And that could be really important if you feel like you're struggling with sleep deprivation. So again, they're more in tune with nature because they're spending a lot more time outdoors. And I think you wrote that there's less prevalence of depression and these things like seasonal affective disorder, which... Yeah, for seasonal affective disorder, they have the lowest incidence of SAD that's been recorded in any Caucasian population so far. So if you compare the prevalence of SAD among the Amish people compared to other Americans living at the same latitude, it's a lot lower. Some of that could be because um, because of this culture of, you know, being kind of grateful to God for what yeah, yeah. he or she has provided. Um, yeah, but, these are religious um, communities. But, yeah. but I think... <clears throat> they're very religious and they may not want to kind of express feelings of discontent with mm. you know different times of year and that kind of thing but there is this association between light and depression and particularly for seasonal affective disorder you know there's there's really strong evidence that exposure to bright light soon after waking is an effective treatment for winter depression but actually there's really good evidence now that it's an effective treatment for general depression as well so I think, yeah. you know, I think there's good grounds to think that the Amish's light exposure is, you know, possibly affecting their propensity to get winter depression. And then then briefly, you, you talk about the, the studies that were done with the the Hazda tribes in Tanzania who, who don't even have a, a word for insomnia. Yes, yes. And similarly, yeah, in those studies, you also see that um, that in these traditional tribal societies, um, where they don't have electric light. Again, you're seeing that they go to bed. They don't go to bed as soon as it gets dark um, because they, they a lot of these communities live kind of quite close to the equator. So then they'd be sleeping, you know, if they, if they fell asleep precisely when it got dark, they'd be sleeping and when it got light, they'd be getting 12 hours sleep a night. And you don't see that, but you do see that they tend to go to bed earlier, quite a lot earlier, like two hours earlier than is typical in electrified communities um yeah. and they wake up around dawn or shortly before dawn so they're far more in synchrony with the sun yeah so these are kind of sort of you know idealistic ways of living that, that are pretty much uh, impossible for most of the <laughs> most of the world to, to do these things but um you also talk about kind of the other extreme and you talk a lot about shift work and specifically, you talk about you interviewed some submariners, people who live up to six months, you know, uh, underwater in a submarine. And also, I wondered yeah. if I could also combine into that people who who work and scientists who work at the poles and they're experiencing sunlight all day round. So we've kind of got two extremes here. This wonderful term that they come up with, big eye. So I wondered if you could just talk mm, about yeah. these two extremes. Well, big eye is a term that comes from Antarctic researchers, and it describes the insomnia associated with both the constant darkness in the winter and the constant lightness in the summer, because both extremes have a big impact on your ability to sleep. You know, if you, if you, if you don't if you don't see any light, um, you have this kind of free running problem where you know you're you're your rhythms are moving around the clock. And, um, you know, so if you, if it's bedtime, your body might be saying, no, no, no it's not, it's 8am, I don't want to go to sleep. So you have insomnia when it's dark all the time. And then when it's light all the time, again, you get this insomnia because you're, you're just completely wired. You know, you've got this alerting effect of bright light and it, it makes it very difficult to sleep. And in fact, I spoke to one um, 
scientist who works in the Antarctic who who kind of he takes teams out there and he gives them this whole like talk at the beginning about the problem of sleep in the Antarctic in the summer. Um, because, you know, you can go, he said, you know, you can go like 24 hours and feel like great. Um, but you haven't had any sleep. And so all those things that sleep deprivation causes things like loss of hand eye coordination and, and confusion and, you know, your logical reasoning vigilance all these things suffer and then you know that's really really dangerous if you're working in these really um extreme conditions where things like crevasses are a genuine you know at daily risk you know you need people to be alert and well rested and not wired and completely without sleep um for them to be safe in those conditions so so that's a problem shift work is a real problem and you know shift work and working in the night shift has been associated with all sorts of kind of long-term health conditions i think the problem is we don't yet have a solution for that because we need people to work shifts you know, our society is set up now. We, you know, we have hosp- we want hospitals to run twenty four hours around the clock, and we don't want the same doctors to be working that whole twenty four hour shift. You know, we we need shift workers, and you know, similarly, public transport, you know, power stations, we need shift workers. So finding a way of minimizing the disruption to their circadian system and to their biology is a kind of big field of research at the moment. I think what's quite interesting about this is that, so we've talked a lot about the effect of light on circadian rhythms, but actually when we eat also impacts our circadian rhythms. So meal timing can shift some of the clocks in our bodies, like particularly the ones that are associated with digestive organs and tissues like our gut cells and our liver and our pancreas and our fat cells. Um, All these tissues have clocks and they they can be they can be altered not only by you know light exposure and signals from this bit of brain tissue the master clock but also from when we eat food um and you know if you're eating in the middle of the night that might be shifting some of your clocks and not others and also the clocks shift at different rates and then if you combine that with light exposure at irregular times you've you've got again the clocks moving but at different rates so you get you know you're you're kind of clocks become really scrambled and out of synchrony with one another. But one way to kind of reduce this desynchrony and keep everything a bit more aligned might be to avoid eating during a night shift. So, you know, even though you're going to work the night shift, you carry on eating your meals when you normally would during the daytime. Um, I don't think we're at a stage where we can say that definitely is effective at this stage, but it's definitely one thing that researchers are pursuing and trying to find out, you know, how can we minimise the health effects of shift work? Because we need to keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just briefly about the the, the submariners. I, I love this picture you, you paint where you say, um, you know, when they get the opportunities, uh, they occasionally allow them to come to the surface and the, <laughs> the the sailors, if that's what they're called, or the submariners, they're like little kids, you know, they scramble at the top and, you know, and they have little barbecues on the roof of the, the submarine because they're, they're just craving, craving sunlight. Yeah, they, you know, they, they spend they spend months underwater with no access to sunlight. And then occasionally if they're in, you know, in, in a kind of safe place, they'll come up. And they'll they'll all rush up there and they'll be completely, you know, yeah, just like little children, so happy to be outside and, you know, uh, smoking a cigarette and jumping in the sea and, you know, just 
yeah, like little children. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so um, bef- just before you go, um, there's so much more we could talk about. It's, it's fascinating stuff, um, the book. Could you just briefly run through some of the interventions that, that people could personally do and, and also that, that might kind of make for a better future to deal with these problems of, of modern life and not seeing enough of the sun, just so it's not of all course. such of a downer for, for everybody? No, 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 because I think there is a lot we can do, actually. I mean, the basic message is that we need to dim our evenings and brighten up our daytimes. That doesn't mean that we have to go, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, go back to the dark ages and and just use candles in the evenings. Uh, I mean, that's effective. But, you know, you can now get you can now get these smart light bulbs that you can kind of you can dim. You can even tune out the blue spectrum light, which our circadian systems are more sensitive to. So basically in the evenings, you know, keep things dimmer try and go for kind of warmer sort of warmer orangey light rather than that kind of intense white blue light um and you know a really simple way of doing that is to you know switch off your ceiling lights and just use kind of you know a few kind of lamps around the place instead or use these smart light bulbs um try to you know if you're using screens in the evening definitely um either put them on night mode you can get this app called flux for your computer which again tunes out that blue spectrum light and and dim the screens make sure your screens are dimmed as well and try and keep them as far away from your eyes as possible and then in the daytime you know just get outdoors I, you know i'm quite practical you know i know i know a lot of us have employers that won't let us spend our daytimes outdoors and often you know it's rainy and and it's no good but you know just do what you can you know eat your breakfast in the sunniest brightest area of your house that you can um ideally eat outdoors you know if yeah. the weather permits um walk cycle to work take a walk around the block every now and then you know that's also going to be good for you because it's good to not spend your day just sitting down there's like mounting evidence that sitting is is you know deadly um so we need to be getting up and moving around so why not get up and just take a quick walk around the block if you have a meeting if it's kind of relatively informal meeting suggest going for a walk and discussing what you are going to discuss while walking rather than sitting in a dim office and you know again in your lunch hour get outside if you can yeah none of that eating a sandwich in front of your desk in the lunchtime no (laughs) and then i think the other message is consistency so try and keep a regular schedule you know try I know it's really hard. I struggle with it too, but try to set a regular bedtime and stick to it and a regular time when you wake up because all of those things are going to keep your clocks tickling along and aligned with each other. And similarly, try and eat your meals at the same time um, and avoid eating late at night because all those things will keep your clocks in time with each other and with the time of day each outside. And, um, and therefore, when, you know, going back to sleep, that will mean that, you know, you'll be getting that message to sleep in the evening. Listen to that message. When you start to feel sleepy, um, follow it, go to bed and, you know, your sleep timing won't be moving around so much. So you should feel more consistently sleepy at the same time each night and then get, you know, get your hours of sleep that you need. 
brilliant. There's so much uh, other stuff in there we could talk about, but that's a good excuse for everyone to go and seek out the book. It's called Chasing the Sun. Give us a, a little um, rundown where people can find out more about you. You're on social media and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm on at Linda Geddes on Twitter. Um, I have a website, which is www.lindageddes.com. Um, yeah, just Google me or Google Chasing the Sun and you'll find out all about me. I now actually, the reason I have to go is that I'm meeting a friend to go swimming in a lake and get my get my lunchtime sun exposure. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> Enjoy the lake and thanks again so much. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. All right, take care. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. See you on the next one.